Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 127, August 21st to August 27th, 1863. Last week, we talked about a variety of topics. We discussed the high command for Robert E. Lee. There is usually a misnomer that ties into lost cause narratives that the Confederacy had better general officers than the Union. While this was true in certain cases, it was not always true, and a small case study on the Army of Northern Virginia would display that. We talked about the soldiers who made up the new United States Colored Troop Regiments and got a better idea about their motivations. Additionally, we ran down a little bit of the situation and supply issues that the war in Oklahoma, also referred to as Indian Territory, would see. I always want to make sure we give a little light to the less well-known corners of the war, so I think last episode was a nice display of that. This week we are actually going to stay in that general vicinity and head a little north to Kansas. But before we talk about Kansas, we need to talk about some Patreon content. And of course, we did a movie review. We did Glory, and that should be posted here in the link to the Patreon if you want to check that out. Did a little movie review there. And then tying into this episode actually coming up very shortly, I'm going to post another movie review, and this one's going to be Ride with the Devil. So if you want to hear about that 1999 movie starring Tobey Maguire, then by all means, there is a link in the show description. And of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show, and they are greatly appreciated. Now, if you recall, when we talked about Bleeding Kansas, there had been a raid on Lawrence before, that town being a hotbed for Jayhawkers and general anti-slavery sentiment. Additionally, it was close enough to launch raids into pro-slavery Missouri. Border ruffians had sacked the town during these early periods of violence, but the actual extent of the destruction is disputed. Sometimes it's really hard to get the right story because of the differing opinions after the war. The important thing is that these actions were the training ground for the future guerrilla activity. We may have mentioned Kansas troops once or twice. Certainly, we have mentioned the aggressive James Blunt, amongst others, and he is very much making an impact in this corner of the war. Some Kansans simply continued in their irregular warfare ways once former war started. In fact, there were Kansas troops who left the regular army to accomplish this task. For the bushwhackers in Missouri, it was going to be a tempting target. William Clark Quantrill, who has a difficult reputation with history, would plan action against the town. Quantrill, we have mentioned before, had a shady past, actually living in Lawrence for a time. Well, there he got himself into the middle of the Bleeding Kansas conflict, sort of playing both sides. He would eventually lead several Jayhawkers into an ambush, most likely killing one of them himself. From there, he would participate further in the conflict before joining up with the rebel army. Initially, his command was small, only about eight men. He initially benefited from the Partisan Ranger Act, 
but it is also complicated in how he interacted with the Confederate Army. There have been a handful of battles we have mentioned in Missouri and Arkansas in which his troopers were involved, and at one point he does travel to Richmond to receive a commission as colonel. He would be referred to as Colonel Quantrill after the fact. Whether that was a legitimate commission, whether that was a legitimate rank though, that's also up to debate. We may have talked about this in our guerrilla warfare episode earlier this year, but there were occasions where prisoners were taken in a conflict that was generally savage. As the war progresses, though, it's going to be less and less likely to be taken as a prisoner, or if you do, you're probably getting executed, unfortunately. So we see that kind of progression. Or regression, I guess you could also say, in that sense. There is, of course, the famous incident at Centralia, where there is not any kind of prisoner taking. In fact, in that incident, all of the pro-Union men were essentially executed, save for one. And that individual actually rides with the guerrillas for a time, so his has a very interesting account that he writes about after the war. But I do want to point out that it's not always brutal violence meeting brutal violence, although this is actually very often the case, especially in situations where there needs to be revenge. So violence beginning violence, that is another concept entirely, trying to even the score, right? While Quantrell's reputation after the war is that of a violent criminal, the Jayhawkers certainly did much to antagonize the Missouri rebels. Senator Jim Lane from Kansas had moved into the state in 1861 and burned the town of Osceola. This was not going to win the hearts and minds of the people. Additionally, there were groups of the already mentioned Jayhawkers, known as Red Legs, former U.S. troopers, turned into this kind of paramilitary group. Now you may be wondering about Red Legs from Bleeding Kansas, and I have seen some sources that list the Red Legs synonymous with Border Ruffians, which makes things a little confusing. In the future, we will just refer to Red Legs as Pro-Union. Shameless plug, we actually talked about the Red Legs in a movie review that we did very early on called The Jayhawkers, which starred Fess Parker, and the bad guys were sort of the Red Legs, so that was kind of the weird part of that movie if they were pro-union you know it's kind of a weird western in that sense thomas ewing would also be placed in command at kansas responsible for the counter guerrilla activities you remember thomas ewing who serves during the prairie grove campaign he's also sherman's adopted brother ewing would start to construct border defenses blockhouses who could serve as obstacles and watchtowers for potential guerrilla strikes. We will talk about that here toward the end of the episode, but he combined this with two other tactics. First, he would assign counter-guerrilla units to lay ambushes for guerrillas in high-activity areas. I think we may have spoken before about Missouri militia units who were adept at this kind of work, as well as Kansans, who were effective, if not overzealous in their work. Regular army units such as the 1st Arkansas we mentioned in a previous episode were also tasked as a response to a regular warfare. We mentioned actually fairly recently I believe how Theodore Dodd's Colorado contingent 
which was infantry, if you remember, at the Battle of Glorieta, moves to Missouri, and they become actually pretty adept at being counter-guerrillas coming from a rougher uh, territory. But Ewing would go further to try to eliminate the support structure of the raiders. We have talked in previous episodes about how in some cases being a guerrilla was better than regular army. You got to be at home, and we all know how working from home is very nice, especially these days. So you got home cooking, and were often better supplied than your regular Confederate counterpart. Ewing, amongst other Union officers, would realize that to truly defeat them, the bushwhackers would have to be deprived of this. Known guerrilla supporters would be imprisoned, and this meant mostly women. We talked about that in the guerrilla episode that we did a while back, how the women and the home structure is very important to these guerrillas. They're making their shirts, and that's almost symbolic in terms of fighting for home and hearth, right? These women who were in prison were kept in a three-story building in Kansas City. On August 13th, this building would collapse, resulting in the deaths of several women and injuries to several others. Of the dead included a sister of Bloody Bill Anderson, his two other sisters being severely injured. Cole Younger, of the James Younger gang, would see two of his cousins killed as well. So there were direct ties to Quantrell's band, and a subsequent call for revenge. Now the causes of the collapse triggered an immediate pointing of fingers. If you were pro-union, then the women were tunneling their way out, which damaged the structural integrity of the building, which I would say would have been pretty hard considering the women were kept on the second and third floors. It's pretty hard to tunnel if you are not on the ground level. If you were pro-Confederate, it was deliberate weakening of the supports for the building, causing it to collapse. A more likely suggestion I have seen is that it was unintentional, but there had been some knocking down of walls to make viewing the prisoners easier. One only has to watch a little bit of HDTV to understand what load-bearing means, so maybe they didn't understand that. Whatever the reason, the guerrilla bands gathered together looking for vengeance. Despite their thirst for revenge, Quantrill was already planning to attack Lawrence. Like I said, it was a good target. Senator Jim Lane would be an objective, the abolitionist and burner of Osceola calling the town his home. The collapse of the prison in Kansas City was just a convenient event to piggyback off of. Scouts had been sent ahead to assess the defenses and approach, with Quantrill personally reconnoitering. It is probably not too far-fetched to say that, having lived there, the guerrilla chief used his previous connections and local knowledge to his advantage. There is a story that guides were used until they reached the limit of their local knowledge and then executed by the guerrillas. This is probably not true. There were several known guides who survived the ordeal. There's even some instances that we see where, especially in the town of Lawrence itself, where Quantrill seemingly knows certain people, so he makes sure that they're safe during the conflict, so we're going to talk about that here shortly. So the fact that they would be using people who were helping them and then killing them when they were done, that doesn't seem to be particularly the case. Maybe once they got into Kansas or if they were a known unionist, that probably could have happened, but certainly not if they were more than willing to help. The Raiders probably numbered around 300 and would pass into Kansas wearing Union blue. 
an outpost commanded by Captain Joshua Pike, would report of the guerrillas' incursion into Kansas, but crucially, they would not warn Lawrence. Pike received heavy blame for his failure. By early in the morning, August 21st, the rebels had made their way to the outskirts of the city, relatively undetected. But I will mention the interesting aspect of the raid is that Lawrence had been at least briefly warned, and they knew they were in the crosshairs for some time before Quantrill actually showed up. There were elements of the 12th Kansas Cavalry, as well as the 2nd Kansas Colored Infantry in town, and a militia that, in a town of 2,000, could muster a couple hundred. Despite militia sometimes being inferior to regular troops, right, we've talked about that before, a lot of these individuals would have had experience in combat because of the irregular conflict that had been waged for some time. They had plenty of arms and even a 12-pound cannon. Now, a cannon would usually deter irregulars, and there were some types of fortifications. While additional cavalry had left when the raid did not materialize fast enough, there was definitely enough to defend the town. After making sure there was no ambush laid out for his raiders, Quantrell ordered the attack. The main column would go down Massachusetts Street, while columns would also head down Vermont and New Hampshire Streets in an effort to cut off any escape. The 14th Kansas and 2nd Kansas Colored Infantry were very quickly dealt with, as they were taken by surprise. Many of these were raw recruits, and most were killed with small numbers escaping. Quantrell would make his way to the Eldridge Hotel, which was considered to be a real issue for the attackers, as it could be fortified. A common tactic when faced with raiders was to fortify a building, such as a courthouse. The Eldridge Hotel would surrender, though, and many of these prisoners were saved from the violence that would erupt. In fact, there were many citizens who were saved from the raiders. The usual narrative is that Quantrell rides in an orgy of violence and destroys everything. But this is not exactly the case. Besides the fact that there were at least some southern sympathizers in town, there were some prisoners taken. There's actually even an account of Bloody Bill Anderson saving somebody, which... If you know anything about Bloody Bill, and we've talked about him before, he's kind of like the psychotic version of Quantrill. Quantrill's a little bit more reserved, but this guy is kind of like off the rails compared to him. And if he's not participating in just general wholesale violence, then obviously that kind of narrative does not fit the picture. Not everyone would be so lucky, though. We do have an account from an eyewitness. At Dr. Jerome F. Griswold, there were four families. The doctor and his lady had just returned the evening before from a visit east. Honorable S.M. Thorpe, State Senator, Mr. J.C. Trask, editor of the Kansas State Journal, Mr. H.W. Baker, grocer, and their ladies were boarding in Dr. Griswold's family. The house was attacked. They called for the men to come out. When they did not obey very readily, they assured them they should not be harmed. If the citizens quietly surrendered, they might save the town. The idea brought them out at once. The ruffians ordered them to get in line. They had scarcely gone 20 feet from the yard before the hole were shot down. Dr. Griswold and Mr. Trask were killed at once. Mr. Thorpe and Mr. Baker wounded, but apparently dead. The ladies attempted to come to their husbands from the house, but were driven back. After the bodies had lain for about half an hour, a gang rode up, rolled them over, and shot them again. 
After shooting the men, the ruffians went in and robbed the house. Mr. Thorpe lingered in great pain until the next day when he died. Mr. Baker, after a long suspense, recovered. So I read that account to say that although there was not general wholesale violence, there certainly was some, and obviously there were certain individuals who were marked for this kind of brutal treatment. There were several red legs at a known red leg hangout who were executed. Jim Lane hid in a cornfield to escape while his house was burned. Despite the violence, it should also be noted that Quantrill explicitly forbade the harming of women. The town would begin to be fired with guerrillas describing as highly disciplined in this regard. There were several accounts of guerrillas threatening to kill one another over the prisoners, but seeing as they did not come to harm, we can say no one acted upon their words. Some houses were saved, and some guerrillas even helped citizens remove their possessions if a house was on fire. Even the wife of Senator Lane would be aided by raiders removing her furniture. But everyone was not so lucky. There were reportedly lists that the guerrillas used to determine who was marked for death. But some were even spared from these lists. In some cases, victims would be passed over, and unfortunately in some cases, a second or third band would come by and carry out the death warrants. But the point is that there was not necessarily just senseless violence. The raiders would argue most of the men who they killed were associated with the kind of military. But there were those who did not maintain discipline. Some guerrillas became drunk. In fact, I have seen it thrown out there that maybe as little as 25 or 50 men actually carried out any killings. One guerrilla, Reverend Larkin Skaggs, would remain in Lawrence and seek to continue killing, actually being killed either by townsfolk or converging reinforcements. So here's a big takeaway that I get from these accounts, is that, and we mentioned this in the episode that we did where we described guerrilla activity, there is a very individualistic style of warfare, and that is displayed here. Everyone is kind of doing their own thing, especially once they're actually into the raiding part of it. There's sort of this loose structure of what they're going to do. They all showed up. They all attacked the town. Once the actual military was dealt with, then it becomes a little less straightforward into what happens, right? So this is more toward the style of these bands, of these individuals, this type of warfare than anything else. Quantrill would pull his command out of town after 9 a.m. with reports of Kansas troops moving on his location. Enough damage was done. We have an account of the aftermath of the raid. Keep in mind some of these accounts are geared toward painting the attack in a certain way, so it would be easy to imagine how sensational this kind of retelling would be. As the scene at their entrance was one of the wildest, the scene after their departure was one of the saddest that ever met mortal gaze. Massachusetts Street was one bed of embers. On this street, 75 buildings containing at least twice that number of places of business and offices were destroyed. The dead lay all along the sidewalk, many of them so burned that they could not be recognized and could scarcely be taken up. Here and there among the embers could be seen the bones of those who had perished in the buildings and had been consumed. On two sides of another block lay 17 bodies. Almost the first sight that met our gaze was a father almost frantic looking for the remains of his son amongst the embers of his office. The work of gathering and burying the dead soon began. From every quarter they were being brought in, until the floor of the Methodist church 
which was taken as a sort of hospital, was covered with dead and wounded. In almost every house could be heard the wail of the widow and orphan. The work of bearing was sad and wearying. Coffins could not be procured. Many carpenters were killed and most of the living had lost their tools. But they rallied nobly and worked day and night, making pine and walnut boxes, fastening them together with the burnt nails gathered from the ruins of the stores. It sounded rather harsh to the ear of the mourner to have the lid nailed over the bodies of their loved ones, but it was the best that could be done. Thus, the work went on for three days, till 122 were deposited in the cemetery, and many others in their own yard. 53 were buried in one long grave. Early on the morning after the massacre, our attention was attracted by loud wailings. We went in the direction of the sound, and among the ashes of a building sat a woman, holding in her hands the blackened skull of her husband, who was shot and burned at that place. Jim Lane would begin to organize the troops for a pursuit of the rebels. While there would be eventually some 1,500 troops, whether it was cavalry, militia, or red legs, they would not be able to catch Quantrell and his raiders before he was able to get back into Missouri. At one point, Quantrell was forced to charge his pursuers to free up some space for his command. Once into Missouri, the bands would disperse. Seven guerrillas were killed on the retreat. 180 is the number of victims listed as a result of the raid, and 182 buildings burned. In addition, $250,000 was stolen from three banks in town. Reprisal would begin almost immediately, including the sham trial and execution of potential spies suspected of helping the raiders. See, if you remember, there were some people that Quantrell specifically wanted to save, and those people had some fingers pointed at them afterwards, but whether it was because they actually helped him or whether simply because he had lived in that town before, it's unclear. At the end of the raid, Quantrell would see his star decline. Anderson will become more deranged, although he was tactically a decent commander. George Todd would pull a pistol on Quantrell, taking any credibility the latter had as a guerrilla captain. Quantrell would still operate in Missouri, but actually shift to Kentucky, where he was killed at the age of 27. There are a lot of controversies that surround the raid, but one of the bigger ones was whether the Confederate government knew or sanctioned it. There were a handful of troopers who joined Quantrell, it seems, but little evidence otherwise. That's also part of the reason why maybe his commission wasn't legitimate, because the Confederate government did not want to be involved with this type of individual, right? Maybe they did not want to have him as an actual officer because they could have plausible deniability in that case, right? We can have some takeaways from the Lawrence raid. Blockhouse-type systems would be a way to mitigate the effects of guerrillas, although they will continue to operate. This is a similar tactic that the British employed during the Boer Wars, the Empire also facing an irregular mobile force with loose command structures. As we have mentioned before, the focus of the Confederate guerrillas and irregulars would be soft targets. Blockhouses would be timely and costly to assault, with little to gain. We see that steamboats were good prey, but they would also start to be armored to protect themselves. 
Lawrence is an interesting case because it was a more direct assault on a town that, according to some inaccurate accounts, was listed as being undefended. There were some defenses and enough men there to make things hard on Quantrill. Was this simply the drive for revenge that led to a high-risk scenario? Numbers certainly helped, but in general, there was a lack of discipline. Bushwhacking, though, refers to dismounting and patting down the brush to fire into the backs of a target, so given that is a favorite of these raiders, it is interesting to think about. The point being that you're probably not going to be taking on too many frontal assaults like they would potentially have done if Lawrence had been prepared and ready for defense. Another fallout of the raid would be the civilian population, which we will close out with today. As mentioned before, often there were hard payments on civilian populations due to guerrilla activity. In some instances, the civilians were forced to pay for damages if a guerrilla raid occurred in their area. We already saw some who joined in a support system or spy network who were imprisoned. Thomas Ewing would immediately issue Order Number 11 on the 25th. This would remove several counties of civilians and forcibly relocate them to deprive the raiders. Here we have an account from Ewing himself in his official report. On the 25th instant, I issued an order requiring all residents of the counties of Jackson, Cass, Bates, and that part of Vernon including in this district, except those within one mile of the limits of the military stations and the garrison towns, and those north of Brush Creek and west of Big Blue, to remove from their present places of residence within 15 days from that date. Those who prove their loyalty to be allowed to move out of the district or to any military in it, or to any part of Kansas west of the border counties, all others to move out of the district. When the war broke out, the district to which this order applies was peopled by a community three-fourths of whom were intensely disloyal. The avowed loyalists have been driven from their farms long since, and their houses and improvements generally destroyed. They are living in Kansas and at military stations in Missouri, unable to return to their homes. None remain on their farms but rebels and neutral families, and practically the condition of their tenure is that they shall feed, clothe, and shelter the guerrillas, furnish them information, and deceive or withhold information from us. The expectations are few, perhaps 20 families in those parts of the counties in which the order applies. Two-thirds of those who left their families on the order and went to the rebel armies have returned. They dare not stay at home, and no matter what terms of amnesty may be granted, they can never live in the country except as brigands, and so long as their families and associates remain, they will stay until the last man is killed, to ravage every neighborhood of the border. With your approval, I was about adopting, before this raid, measures for the removal of the families of the guerrillas and of known rebels, under which two-thirds of the families affected by this order would have been compelled to go. That order would have been most difficult of execution, and not half so effectual as this. Though this measure may seem too severe, I believe it will prove not inhuman, but merciful to the non-combatants affected by it. Those who prove their loyalty will find houses enough at the stations, and will not be allowed to suffer for want of food. 
Among them, there are few but dissatisfied with the order, notwithstanding the present hardship it imposes. Among the Union refugees, it has regarded as the best assurance they have ever had of a return to their homes and permanent peace there. To obtain the full military advantageous of this removal of the people, I have ordered the destruction of all grain and hay, in shed or in the field, not near enough the two military stations for removal there. I have also ordered from the towns occupied as military stations a large number of persons, either openly or secretly disloyal, to prevent the guerrillas getting information of the townspeople, which they will no longer be able to get of the farmers. The execution of these orders will possibly lead to a still fiercer and more active struggle, requiring the best use of the additional troops the general commanding has sent me, but will soon result, though, with much unmerited loss and suffering in putting an end to the savage border war. So there are some takeaways we can have from what Thomas Ewing has written here, right? He doesn't really think it's going to be affecting too many people, I guess. He has a lot of fractions in there and talks about how, well, most of them aren't there. The union folks have already left. So it's interesting to see that he's kind of mitigating exactly who's going to be affected, right? The other interesting thing I think that we get at the very end is that if we carry out these orders, it's going to maybe increase the violence for a period of time. So he's acknowledging the fact that, hey, even if we do this, it's going to maybe get worse here before it gets better. But in the long run, removing the support system is the right way to go. And he even mentions how it's probably better for the non-combatants anyway, right? Because there would have been reprisals on the part of the Kansans and the Redlegs, right? There would have been continued bushwhacking between the two sides in the region. So in the long run, it might have been a better decision for them as well. Order number 11 was carried out by the Kansas Cavalry as well as many Redlegs. Many civilians, whether they had participated in guerrilla raids or not, would be killed. Obviously, the troops carrying out these orders would be doing so with vigor. Looting and the burning of homes would follow in most cases. This is another interesting thing to point out too, is that the raid is partly because there had been all this looting of pro-Confederate or at least neutral families in that region. And there were some who said that this was sort of a reprisal to get the stuff back, right? That's how some people looked at it. And we get kind of this continued support, even though these individuals are being moved to, in some places, say Indiana, uh, as far as there, they are still trying to provide support. There's even some instances that I've read of individuals as far up as Wisconsin sending down percussion caps for pistols so that the gorillas can use them. So there is still going to be this network, albeit it is not going to be right there where they need them to be, right? While Quantrell would generally see his star decline after the raid, so too would raiding in general in Missouri. The leader of the Lawrence raid would be killed in Kentucky because of this general decline. Order number 11 was part of this, while conscription in the Confederacy was also a big part. The Confederate government obviously wanted more manpower into the regular army. Repealing of the Partisan Ranger Act would be a tactic to divert would-be guerrillas. But this was not always effective. 
guerrillas continued to operate lawlessly, and the conscription acts often tipped pro-Union irregulars to violence against the South. We will continue to monitor, but keep all this in mind, and in some ways, Lawrence is the turning point. With that, we can conclude our analysis of the Lawrence Raid. We talked about the motivations, events, and fallout of the raid, covering it, I believe, in its entirety. Next week, we're going to spend some time in Arkansas. There are two engagements we need to talk about there. We also should pop back to North Dakota and finish up Sibley's campaign against the Sioux. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.